0: particular fondness for Mark really because uh, he's, he's very short, concise and kind of to the point and doesn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of waffle basically uh, in, his, in his gospel. Uh, an example of that is Mark recalls Jesus being uh, tempted in the desert. Uh, he uses two verses and 35 words. If you look at Matthew's recollection of Jesus being tempted in the desert, he uses 11 verses and 235 words. So that's not saying that Mark misses out important things. Um, but he was, as we learnt in the first of our studies, he was the first to recall a lot of these accounts. Uh, and as we know, uh, the first person to write something down, and then that jogs somebody else's memory, and, and so more detail gets applied as you go through the Gospels. But uh, as we've learnt, Mark was the first one to, to put down a lot of these accounts. So let's read together Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's entitled, Jesus Heals a Paralytic. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that thy questions within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier We never saw anything like this. So there's a couple of main points that I want to draw. The first one, um, I just want us to look at the paralyzed man's friends and the role that they had in the story. So I've entitled this first section, Faith and Friendship in Action. So as we look at the first four verses, we learn that Jesus was at home. So we don't know what home this was we don't know if Jesus had his own home or if it was a place that he called home most likely to be one of his disciples homes and we learned that this home where Jesus was it was full there was no room anywhere so at this time the interest in Jesus was massive okay let's remember Jesus ministry had just begun at this point and he was now known throughout because of the miracles that people had seen him performing so over the past weeks, we've learned that Jesus has been busy healing the sick, casting out demons. So at this point in time, Jesus was the teacher to go and see and go and listen to. So Jesus was at home preaching the word. And Mark doesn't give us any details about what he was preaching. And I had a look in the other Gospels and there's no other details about what was being preached, just that he was preaching and teaching at home. And that the house was packed. And then we hear about the paralyzed man. And the introduction is, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So again, the brevity's there. We don't know who they are, just that there are four of them, and they are carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. So let's go back 2,000 years if you were disabled and paralysed, you were, you were an outcast. You generally would have had no friends. You weren't looked after by the state. You were just left to fend for yourselves. So here we have a paralysed man, who in theory should be an outcast and have no friends. He can't move. He has to be carried everywhere. And yet this man is rich. He's rich in something More precious than money. This man is rich in love. So Alice and I will often say that we've won the lottery, the the love lottery, because uh, we love each other so much. And not having the worldly wealth doesn't matter because we have something more important. We have each other. And there was no luck in um, Alice and I meeting and getting married. It was God's plan. Just as it was God's plan for the paralytic man to have these four friends. They loved and they cared for him enough to take him to Jesus, despite the cost to themselves. So what an amazing example these four friends are to us. It does beg the question, though, what type of friend are we? Do we care for our friends enough to literally carry them to help and to share Jesus with them? So looking in a bit more detail, we don't know whose idea it was to go and see Jesus. Was it the paralysed man's idea? Was it the four friends? Did they get together and say, we should take our friends to go and see Jesus? He has the power and he will heal him. But what we do know is that the paralysed man was a willing participant. He wasn't just picked up on his stretcher, shouting and protesting, and taken against his will to go and see Jesus he was carried there and taken there by his friends. And that was because he couldn't physically get there himself. All five of them, the fourth friends and the paralytic man, they had the faith and they had belief that Jesus would heal. And that wasn't a little bit of faith. That was a massive faith. And then when we look at verse 4, they came across a stumbling block. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... There we go. They could not get near Jesus because of the crowd. So they had to think, what should we do? They removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So the faith that these five had was massive, and there were different elements to their faith. So I'm going to list those now. Firstly, and most importantly, they were united in their faith. Throughout the whole story, they were united in their goal to get their friends to see Jesus. And they had faith that it was the correct and right thing to do. They were all pulling in exactly the same direction, literally and metaphorically. They were literally pulling him up the rickety staircase to get onto that flat roof, lowering him down together. If any one of them had, had faltered at any point, that man would have been off the stretcher. So are we united in our faith with each other? We need to be united as a church around our own church values. So do we want to see lives transformed in our local communities? Do we want to see new communities of believers established? And do we have the faith that God will use us to do that? And secondly, and these two kind of go together, they were persistent and they were courageous in their faith. So they arrived at Jesus' house. The place was crowded and they had no way of getting to see Jesus. But they didn't give up and turn around and go home. They persisted. I can imagine they would have faced objections from those inside as well as they arrive there and they start climbing up the steps with the man on the stretcher, they would have been getting the looks, what what are you doing, where are you going? And then they start physically breaking the roof. Imagine the debris falling down on the top of the heads and the people inside. They must have been getting some abuse from from those inside shouting at them. But Jesus knew what was going on. And here's the amazing bit, Jesus let it happen. He could have stopped it at that point, but he let it happen. He let them persist. And the five of them together, they showed their courage and they showed their persistence. The man on the stretcher must have had enormous courage. He is completely helpless in the hands of his four friends. So, again, it brings us to a question Are we persistent? Are we courageous? Can we show more guts for what we believe? And do we keep going? Do we keep praying even when it's tough? We look at verses like Romans 12, verse 12. And it says this. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be persistent in prayer. But why should we do this? We'll look to Galatians 6, verse 9. And it says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So they were united, they were persistent and courageous, and they were also creative in their faith. Again, they were faced with this obstacle and they thought of an innovative way to see Jesus. Let's not, let's not stop here. Let's, I'll tell you what, let's, let's go through the roof. What? Let's break through the roof that's not a small job. Physically, that's a big old job to break through the roof and big enough to fit a stretcher through. You're not thinking just to slide someone down, you know, a one foot square hole. They had to fit a stretcher through this. It's a, a massive old job that they had to do. So when we are faced with obstacles, are we creative enough to think of a way to, to get around it and new ways to, to share our faith, new ways to, to worship our God? And the final final element of the faith is they were sacrificial in their faith. So there would have been a cost to what they had done. There was a physical cost to their bodies. They're aching, they're tiring, you know, ripping the roof with their hands. There would have been damage, And then there would have been a financial cost. They would have had to rectify the damage that had been caused to that building. So are we willing to give things up for our faith, for what we believe in? from those distractions that stop us spending time with God, are we willing to give those up? The disciples, they gave up everything that they had to follow Jesus. They sacrificed the way of life that they had known for a life on the road. They walked away from everything that they had. And we're here fortunate enough to live in a country with free speech, but others give up their freedom. I expect many of you know the, the book, of The Brother Yun, a Chinese pastor, and his part of his life story is in the book, The Heavenly Man. He gave up everything, and he was imprisoned and tortured for his faith. It's uh, a book which is well worth a read about a great example of giving everything up for your faith, a sacrificial faith. So what can we learn from these Friends. Firstly, our faith has a massive impact on our friends and our family. So we can show our faith through our actions and as a church we need to be united in our faith in whatever challenges and changes that come along. If we're united in our faith we'll be displaying an unbreakable sign of God's love and unity. And it's important to note that we can't give faith to other people as a gift. All we can do is display it and show it as an action. Faith is individual, and each individual needs to put their own faith in God. It'd be great if we could give it as a gift, but we can't. We just have to display it. And secondly, we need to be persistent. Persistent. Keep faith that those that you love will be saved. Never lose heart. Keep praying. And as we've learned there, persistence is a godly attribute. And so the second point that I'm going to look at is Jesus' authority to forgive sins. And I've called this bit, Jesus the forgiver is also Jesus the healer. So we'll go back again, 2,000 years, and the thoughts that we've always covered is that uh, if you were paralysed, that was because um, you'd done something wrong. You were being punished for a sin that you had done or a sin of your parents. So therefore, in the minds of, of everybody gathered in the house and the people around, it would follow that this paralysed man he was a sinner and he was a sinner on a big scale or he came from a line of sinners. But we know that this is not true. And Jesus points this out to his disciples in John chapter nine. And it just says this, I'll just read an extract. It says, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? and this is the important part, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we know that the paralytic man was not paralysed because of his sin. His bodily condition was not a punishment from God for the wrong that he had done or his family had done. He was though still guilty of sin as we all are, and as everybody is, other than Jesus so when we look at verse five it says and when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven so this is a big moment uh, in Mark's gospel and a big moment in the bible this is the first time that we hear of Jesus forgiving sins So this is massive. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. So bearing in mind that Jesus at this time is in a room and he's in a room full of scribes. um, So to describe the scribes, they're basically scholars of the law of the time, um, religious men. um, And these scribes are thinking to themselves, Jesus is committing blasphemy. So the oxford Definition for blasphemy is something that you say or do that shows that you do not respect God or a religion. So in the eyes of the scribes and the law of the land, blasphemy was the biggest of all the sins, and it was punishable by death, because only God can forgive sins. Even the priests in the temples don't profess to forgive sins. They acknowledge that they're just an intermediary, And here was Jesus saying that he had the authority to forgive sins. He was showing no respect for the religious laws and practices of the day. At that point, to be forgiven, you had to go to the temple, you had to confess your sins, and you had to offer a sacrifice. In the eyes of the scribes, Jesus was ignoring everything that had gone before, and he was claiming to be God. So why is the statement, son, your sins are forgiven, so significant? It's because by saying this, Jesus is claiming, it is, claiming that it is he who has been sinned against and therefore he is claiming to have the, the authority to forgive the sins. So let's look at sin. So if I was to... Uh, let's say, trip over Paul Williams in the final stretch of one of his marathons so that I could get past him and finish before him, I would have sinned against Paul. I could and would apologise, uh, and Paul may well accept my apology. But ultimately, the fact that I had tripped Paul and cheated is a sin against God, not just against Paul. So that at that moment when I commit that sin... I'm not living according to how God will want me to live. And therefore, that is why the sin is against God, not just against Paul. So God is ultimately the only one who can forgive me for that action. Paul can forgive me from a earthly and brotherly point of view, but that doesn't set me right with God. Only God can forgive the action of me cheating and tripping Paul over. So when we look at King David, he'd had what we describe as a colourful life. He um, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then to cover that up, he obviously, the next thing to do is to have her husband killed. But yet in Psalm 51, Paul knew he had wronged Bathsheba. He knew that he'd wronged her husband. But in Psalm 51, we read this. And this is a psalm to God. Against you, you are only have i sinned and done what is evil in your sight so therefore the only recipient of that of that sin is god and the only one that can offer forgiveness for that sin is god so by jesus saying to the paralytic man your sins are forgiven he was showing that he was the recipient of the sin and therefore he had the authority to forgive the sin and the power and the authority of God. But in the scribes' mind, Jesus was not God and he was committing blasphemy. So we read that Jesus was able to perceive what the scribes were thinking through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that's a, uh, that's a sobering and amazing thought at the same time. You know God is able to read what's going on in our minds. you know the the joyful side of that is when the words fail us, you know when we're praying and we just can't get the words out, God knows what we mean. God knows that you know what we're trying to say and where we're at. And then Jesus says to the scribes, having perceived what they were thinking, he says to them, "What is it easier to do? Is it easier to say, "Your sins are forgiven?" Or, rise up, take your bed and walk. So let's look at this from an earthly point of view. Saying your sins are forgiven, there's no tangible evidence for that. Saying, rise, take up your bed and walk. Well, if he doesn't rise, take up his bed and walk, Jesus will be shown to be a fraud. And it follows. Jesus says to the paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk. And the paralyzed man does just that. And the people in the room, they were stunned. They'd never seen anything like this before. They'd seen firsthand that Jesus was no fraud. And they started praising God. So Jesus had... By doing the physical healing, he's shown that he was able to do the spiritual healing as well. He was able to restore the physical body, an act which seemed impossible. Therefore, he could do the impossible spiritual thing. And he was showing that he had the authority over every aspect of our physical and spiritual being. Um, Would you like to just come up? So as we draw to a close, I just want to think the four friends and the paralysed man were probably the only ones in that room that were not stunned by what had happened. Remember right at the beginning that we had learnt they had faith that Jesus could heal. They were the ones who knew Jesus is the real power. Here they were, possibly the uneducated maybe the lowest in society. Remember the paralysed man, he was an outcast. They were breaking into the roof and the room of a highly educated and very knowledgeable scribes. And yet they were the only ones that knew and realised the power that Jesus had. That Jesus had, And they had the faith that he would heal. They understood what Jesus could do. I just want to, let you know that having faith in Jesus is far more powerful than anything else. You might not have all the knowledge. I certainly don't. I wouldn't class myself as an educated person. You know, I left school with a few GCSEs, no A-levels, no university degree. But I do have faith that Jesus came to save me. And he came to save all of us here. And as a result of that, I've been able to live a life of fullness. Not full of possessions, money and power, but full of the knowledge that I'm loved and have a heavenly father who sent his son to die for me and that one day I will be able to join him in heaven. Faith is far more powerful than anything else. So in the passage we've learned that Jesus is the only person who can restore us both physically and spiritually. He's the only one who can forgive our sins because Jesus is God. And there is no other way to forgiveness. Ultimate forgiveness comes from God and God alone. And we learn that Jesus is the only one who can do the impossible. So we should be filled with confidence and assurance in our faith. Because there is no one else who can restore us physically and restore us spiritually. So as we go back to a time of worship, I want us to be brave. I want us to step out in faith like those five men did. Just remember, faith without action is dead. Faith in action is what as a church and as a town and as a country it's what we need. So as we respond, if you feel the prompting that you have something to share, be courageous and step out and share it. If you need to lay down, jump up and down and dance. If you need prayer, come and get it. Just feel free and step out in faith and do as God would have you do.